Okay, good morning everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be with you again, wonderful to open God's Word with you again. Uh, for those of you who didn't notice, because you snuck in a little bit late, wonderful to have Moby with us. He's uh, obviously been away uh, down in the Val and beyond uh, doing his community service this year. But, uh, brother, fantastic to have you back with us now. Um, okay, we are back in the Gospel of Mark. Back in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8 is where we are today. And, uh, you know, being here in Pretoria, South Africa's capital city, I'm sure most of you have had this experience. I've certainly had it several times, sometimes even several times uh, in short succession, right? You're out somewhere, you're out on the road, and then the next thing, here comes motorbike after motorbike after motorbike, and black SUV after black SUV after black SUV, and then there's these flashing blue lights, and everyone's... Uh, driving fast and smoothly and the cars are right next to each other and then they start blocking off some side roads and and whatnot and then you wait you wait you wait everything's calm and quiet and then here comes the the vips right in their cars coming behind and and as they drive the road's completely clear there's no possibility of anybody coming and joining the roads because All the joining roads have been blocked off, and they just drive ahead smoothly. And, of course, most of the time we we don't know who's in that car. Ah, Is it Cyril? Who is it? We don't know. But it's somebody very important. That much we do know. And uh, I certainly, uh, in traffic at times, have wished that I maybe had a small army of motorbikes and SUVs that can clear the way for me, right? So that I can go uh, quickly. Um, Right, so now, strangely enough, um, we're actually going to see something like that here in Mark's Gospel. Okay? Uh, Take a look with me, chapter 1. Verses 2 through 8. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. Uh, please read along with me. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so he's quoting here from the Old Testament. This is a prophecy. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized Him by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist. 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the way I'd like us to start looking at this passage today is by focusing on the prophecy from the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3. And in this prophecy, we're just quickly going to note the sender, the messenger, and the Lord. We're going to think about each of these. See, now verse 2 tells us that this prophecy is from the book of Isaiah. See, I think here in this country we normally say Isaiah, don't we? Isaiah, Isaiah. Anyway, you know who I mean. That's a very important Old Testament prophet. It's actually, um, though this, this, this quotation is from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, it's actually a combination of a quotation from Isaiah and another quotation from another Old Testament prophet, Malachi. Now, it was common practice, though, in those days that when you sometimes combine sources from multiple places, you don't necessarily reference all your sources. You just kind of reference the main one you wanted to highlight. So that's what Mark does here. It just references Isaiah. But the quote is actually taken from two places in the Old Testament. Now, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Malachi quotation from Malachi 3 is a reference to God coming to judge. It refers to a messenger who is announcing, warning people, God is coming... He's coming to judge, so therefore repent. Therefore turn from your sin. Therefore turn back to God. Or else judgment is coming. The Isaiah quotation from Isaiah 40 verse 3 is more of an announcement of comfort and encouragement for God's people. The emphasis there is God is going to reign again and make all things right. So there is a sense of both these aspects here as John the Baptist, as we will see, makes this announcement. The king is coming. Be ready for him. Now the sender, who is the one who is sending this messenger? It's God himself. It's God himself speaking in both these Old Testament uh, quotations. Um, He is the one who sends the messenger, and he says, uh, "This me- he says he's sending this messenger. Who is this messenger? Well, he's described also here in this passage, verse three, as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And as we can see from verse four, that is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. And what is the message?" 
What is, what is it, rather, that the messenger is being sent to do? Well, he's being sent to prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, so not quite like my illustration uh, to open up the sermon, not quite like, like uh, this entourage that comes and clears the traffic away uh, for the VIPs, but the metaphor being used here is, is still of preparing the road, preparing the, 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 the way that a, a very important person, a king, would be traveling. And the idea is that holes would be filled in and bumps would be leveled out and any uh, sticks or branches or big rocks, any sort of roadblocks would be moved out of the road. The, made is, the road is made as straight and flat for travel as possible so that travel can be smooth and comfortable and efficient for the coming king. That's the metaphor. And what the metaphor refers to Okay, is announcing the coming of the king and calling people to be ready for his arrival. To be ready for his arrival by repenting from their sins and being prepared to give their allegiance to this true king who's coming shortly. They should not resist his coming, but should be ready and eager to welcome him as their king. That's preparing the way for him. And this verse tells us, verse 3, he's preparing the way of the Lord. The Lord. We see from verse 9 and following, okay, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. We first see John. John preaches prepares the way, and then comes Jesus. So Jesus is the one who John is preparing the way for. Now, the word Lord, though, this is an interesting word in our Bibles, because the word Lord is not always a title for God. Okay? The word Lord can simply refer to somebody who's in authority, a master, okay, a king. So what does it refer to here? At the very least, it's saying prepare the way for the king. At the very least, it's saying that Jesus is coming as a king. But is it saying also that God is coming, that Jesus is God? I said to you last week, one of the biggest questions about this book is uh, that this book poses to us is who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now in Isaiah 40 verse 3 right, where this prophecy comes from the word Lord is written there in all capital letters. Okay? And when you see this in your Old Testament it's an interesting thing. When you see this in your Old Testament it means that the word that has been translated is not Adonai, the word for, for Lord as in master or authority or, or king. Instead, what has been translated is the actual name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay, if it's, if it's the word Adonai, 
then maybe the first letter is, is capital and the rest are small letters. But if it's the name Yahweh that has been translated, the entire uh, word Lord is all in capital letters. And that's what we see in Isaiah 40 verse 3. There's no ambiguity here. These, these passages that, that John is quoting, they're saying prepare the way for God. God is coming. God is coming. I said last week that through this book, Mark would show us again and again that Jesus is not only God's promised King, that Jesus is not only God's promised rescuer and ruler, but He is also God Himself. And we didn't have to wait very long, did we? Right? This very next passage John quotes from these Old Testament passages, and in doing so, he says very clearly to us, not John, Mark, excuse me, quotes from these Old Testament passages and says very clearly to us, Jesus is God Himself. He's the coming King, and He is God Himself. And now let's think about this a little bit more, because if we read... Uh, this passage here with that in mind uh, it, it might seem a bit disjointed and here's what I mean verse 2 says I send my messenger before your face and he will prepare your way so you know that sounds like God who's the one sending God is sending his messenger to pre prepare the way for someone else I send him before your face to prepare your way. But then verse 3 says that he, that's the messenger, will prepare the way of the Lord. And we've just said that that's God himself. So, which is it? God sends his messenger to prepare the way for someone else, or God sends his messenger to prepare the way for Yahweh, for God himself. And we've got to think about this carefully because in the, in, in the, the answer to it is, is actually both. Okay? And here's what I mean. We have to think a little bit here about the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? The doctrine of the Trinity. And this is a doctrine that's notorious for being hard to understand. And it is hard to understand. But it's important that we do our best to understand it as well as we can. Okay? Nobody can fully wrap their mind around how exactly it is that God is three persons, but still one God. But, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be surprising to us that it is difficult for us to fully wrap our minds around the God of the universe. Okay? It shouldn't be surprising to us that there are some things about Him that are difficult for us to understand. What we can and must do is believe what the Bible tells us about God, even when we can't quite figure out how those, the different things the Bible tells us about God fit together just so. Now, a theologian named Wayne Grudem uh, here's his definition of the Trinity. 
God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Let me say that again. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, if you put the diagram up, okay, great. There's a diagram here that's been used for a long time uh, in church history that will help us explain some of this. See, if you follow the um, if you, if you follow the diagram, you'll notice that it's emphasizing God the Father is God, so He is fully God. He's not just partially God; He is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is God. He's not just partially God. He is fully God. God the Son is God. Fully God. Okay? So our point here is that we're not talking about something like a sandwich. You know? God the Son is the bread. God the Father is the meat. No. God the Father is Fully God. Not partially God, fully God. And so on and so forth. But at the same time, God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Father. Okay. So this helps us understand our passage. Again, we don't know exactly how all this fits together, but we do know what we have said clearly from the Bible. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. But God the Father is not God the Son. Okay? Three persons, one God. Now this is how it's possible in this passage for God the Father to send His messenger to prepare the way before Jesus. Right? Who is God the Son. And it makes perfect sense that God the Father also sends His messenger to prepare the way for God Himself. Because God the Son is not God the Father, but God the Son is God Himself. How do we apply this announcement, this prophecy well if all of this is true we need to do exactly what John the Baptist was calling people to do we need to repent and follow Jesus repent of your sins devote your life to Jesus give him your full allegiance he is the true king and He is God, very God. Now what does repentance mean? This is another uh, Christianese word that we can use a lot, but maybe sometimes uh, maybe lose a little bit of the meaning of. What, what does repentance mean? It means to recognize your sinfulness. 
to see your need for forgiveness, to go to God and ask for the forgiveness you need. It means to turn away from your sinful way of life and to turn towards God and obeying Him, living for Him. It means turning from your rebellion against God to allegiance to God. It means stepping down as the king of your own life and bowing to Jesus instead. It means, as we will see through the course of the book of Mark, taking up your cross, dying to self, not living for yourself, but living for Jesus, following Jesus. So let me ask you today, you personally, each of you, individually, consider this question please. What is Christianity to you? Is church attendance part of your life simply because it's something you grew up with? Do you come to church and do some other Christian things because you'd like to think of yourself as a good person? Or... Have you recognized the sinfulness of your sin? Have you recognized that you have spat in the face of a glorious God and you desperately need His forgiveness? And have you come to Him for that forgiveness and committed your life to living for Him? Have you recognized That Christian is not just a box that you check when you fill out a form. But it is your life. It can't just be part of your life. It is your life. Have you recognized, as our memory verse from a few weeks back puts it, that we must live all of life for the glory of God? If you have not... Recognize that. I urge you, repent. Repent. Recognize your rebellion against God and turn to Him for His rescue and turn to Him to live for Him as your Lord, your King, your God. Secondly, We can rest in His plan. This passage is amazing. It shows us the fulfillment of a plan that God announced through the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier. That should give us confidence in at least two ways. It shows us that saving us was not merely a spontaneous, in the moment, uh, passionate thought that God had that he might lose interest in a few weeks later. Rather, it's something that he planned far ahead and that he orchestrated history to fulfill down to the detail. It is a settled, determined, committed decision. And God's not going to change His mind. Saving us was very intentional. 
Secondly, we should be reminded that our God rules over history. When He makes a plan, He is fully capable of making His plan happen. He always brings His plans to pass. Nothing can derail them. So just like we've seen that this part of God's plan of salvation came to pass. Indeed, a messenger did come. A messenger did announce Jesus is coming. Jesus did come. So too, we can have confidence that the rest of God's plan will unfold in His perfect timing. I'm jumping ahead here with the story of Jesus. But He lives a perfectly righteous life and fulfills all righteousness. And then He dies on the cross so that He can pay the penalty we deserve for our sins and can offer up to God the Father His perfect life as our righteousness. So that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can be saved because God can look on them and see instead His perfect, sinless, beloved Son who fulfilled all righteousness. And God can look at you, God can look at me and say, you are righteous. Therefore, you are justified. You are forgiven. Jesus accomplishes that on the cross. He's raised from the dead, showing clearly His victory over death, showing clearly that God has accepted His sacrifice, showing clearly that He really was the perfect the perfect sinless Savior, that He had indeed fulfilled all righteousness, and death could not hold Him. And then He returns to heaven, having promised us that He is coming back. He's coming back. And when He comes back, those who reject Him will be punished. And those who embrace Him as King and Lord and Savior and God will receive eternal reward and be in His presence forever and ever and ever. Now, the rest is just as guaranteed as what has already happened. Just as we saw that God made promises 700 years beforehand and fulfilled them to the detail so we can trust that the rest of what He's promised will be fully fulfilled as well. And lastly, we must recognize Jesus' worth. We must recognize Jesus' worth. Now obviously, in a sense, I'm saying the same thing here. We've already spoken about how He's King, how He's Yahweh Himself, He's God, very God. But I just want to highlight verse 7 here, where John the Baptist says, After me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
In preparing a sermon on John 13, um, I learned that washing the feet of guests who are arriving at a meal was a culturally expected practice for Jewish people during the time of Jesus. And that what was normal was that this was a job, right? This was a job reserved for your lowest ranking servant in the household. This was a job for the lowest of servants. But John the Baptist says here, I'm not even worthy to do the job that the lowest ranking servant does. Not for Jesus. I'm not even worthy of washing his feet. It's an interesting perspective, right? We tend to think someone's worthy, then that means we run in and we serve and we do everything we can for them. And, and of course we understand where that comes from. But now think about this, think about this angle. The King of Kings, who should be lived for by all creation. Right? That everyone should be devoted to and give their full allegiance to, right? But he's so great, he's so glorious that we really, we can't presume to be worthy to even wash his feet. God, very God, sinless and holy, good and wise in everything he does, the creator himself, the creator of absolutely everything. And how amazing is it How amazing is it that our Creator became one of His creation to save us and to save us even when we were still in rebellion against Him. Surely, He's worthy of our full allegiance. Amen? Amen.